And then there are some that we prayed for in the church that have fallen into sin and they've left the church. And we prayed for them and asked that the Lord would work in their hearts to bring them back, but they haven't come back. And so sometimes we come down in our thoughts on on prayer that we really come to the place where we think, why should we have any confidence in prayer? It seems like so much of the time that prayer does not really work. And we might be tempted to explain away the lack of results of prayer by saying, well, God lets people do what they want. Uh, People act according to their will, and it's not our fault. It's not God's fault. Uh, It's not... uh, It's not us that's the the cause of this. They're the ones that are at fault, and it's their free will that causes them to turn against God. And I don't think that that's really an acceptable answer, because why would we pray unless we believe that God is able to change things? Why would we pray unless God is able to affect the change in someone, something that he does himself? And this is really a problem for people who believe that free will is what leads people to salvation, why do they pray? I mean, why would they pray that God would, would change a person's heart or override their will and cause them to come to him if he's incapable of doing that? Well, of course we believe that God is able to change a person's will, and God is the one who works on that person and causes them to come to him in salvation. And so that's really a theological conundrum for all of the people that believe that salvation is simply a matter of free will. So we see these problems in prayer, and in my private conversations with people, I suppose that probably the most often questions that come to me are, how do I pray in the right way? Why doesn't God answer my prayers? Will prayer change God's mind about things so that God does something different than he originally intended to do? So those are kind of the kinds of questions that people ask about prayer. And I hope that we'll be able to answer some of those questions as we progress in our study through these verses. Now, I want to warn you that This is not the normal type of messages. The next few, I think I have four here planned on prayer. Not the normal type of messages, perhaps, that you hear on prayer because we're looking at these specific verses and the problems that exist here and what John, the questions that John raises. So we'll look at things that may be a little bit different than other people would look at the issue of prayer. So if you'll look at our text, John begins the 14th verse with the word and, and that means that that verse is very closely connected with what comes before. He says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother's sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin And there is a sin not unto death. Now, you're probably most interested in verses 16 and 17. What does John mean when he speaks about a sin unto death? We're not going to talk about that tonight. We'll get to that just a little bit later on. But I want you to notice the connection between verses 13 and 14. He says, and this is the confidence that we have in him. And that's the first area of discussion that we want to consider tonight. And that is confidence in prayer. Our confidence 
It's tied to verse number 13, which is the assurance that we have eternal life. Because we have believed in the name of the Son of God, and we do have eternal life, then we have confidence in prayer. Uh, If you remember, verse number 13 is the purpose statement of the epistle. And there it says, we may know that we have eternal life. And that was written so that believers would know that. And because they have believed, they can be confident that they do have a relationship with God. And that confidence translates into assurance that God will hear their prayers and God will answer them. Now, before we step a little bit further into this, we have to understand what John means when he says that God hears us. Now, he's not speaking there about the physical act of hearing. It's not waves of sound that travel into the ear canal and then go down to the eardrums and it vibrates and that's translated into recognizable speech by the brain. John is not talking about a mechanical process. He's using a very special word here when he says here, which is a word that means that God is disposed towards us. It means that God is ready to do something for us. Now, certainly we do know that God hears everything that goes on. He knows everything that happens in every place. But this is not a word that means that kind of hearing. It means a word, it's a word that means that God is ready to do for his people what he doesn't do for anyone else. Because of this relationship that we have with God, we have the assurance that God is already disposed to hear us. And we have that assurance because we have eternal life. God hears. Now, there are two important factors concerning this assurance. And the first of these is that God accepts us. John says, we know that God will hear us. Now, now, folks, that's not a generic statement where John says that anyone that calls upon the name of God, anyone who prays, can have the assurance that God hears him. Now, it's very clearly stated here that because we have believed in the Son of God and that we do know that eternal life abides in us, that's the only way that we can have confidence that God hears. On May 3rd of this year, there will... Our country will observe a national day of prayer, something that's done every year. And people of every faith in America will be called upon to pray. And it doesn't matter what religion that they are. It doesn't matter whether they have believed in Jesus Christ or not. The call will go out and people will be asked to pray as if the prayers of all people, no matter what they believe, makes a difference with God. Now, it makes all the sense in the world to call people to prayer that are believers in Jesus Christ. If they have believed the record that God has given of his son, then it makes sense to call them to prayer. But it makes no sense at all to call anyone else to pray because God does not hear the prayers of anyone who is not a believer. And the reason that he doesn't is because those people are not accepted by God. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul wrote that those of us that have placed our faith in Christ are accepted in the beloved. Now, I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm breaking into a long sentence that covers 14 verses in the first chapter, and so for sake of time, we won't read that all. Just permit me to break in here at verse number 5. This is where Paul says, "...having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved." 
in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And so we are accepted by God on the behalf of the redemption that we have in Christ through the blood of the cross. We have been forgiven of our sins and by the grace of God. And and so we have entered into a right relationship with God. We are accepted in Christ, and, and that perfectly accords with John 5.13, 1 John 5.13, which says that we have eternal life because we have believed. Now, as you look here at what Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse 7, you'll see that Paul ties that acceptance to God, uh, acceptance by God to the forgiveness of sins. In other words, because our sins have forgiven, we are no longer considered to be sinners in the eyes of God, at least in the sense that we are condemned by our sins. But those that have not been accepted still have their sins upon them. If they're not believers, there is this barrier that stands between them and God that shuts them out from God. But once you have believed and you have your faith in Christ and your sins have been forgiven, then that barrier has been removed and God hears you. There are a lot of trails that we could go down on that, but I want to confine our discussion tonight to two examples. The first of these is a type of Christ, and the second is an illustration of how that type is applied. Now, the type that I want to speak to you about is in the Old Testament, and that is the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. Most of you, I think, are familiar by the number of times that we've talked about the Ark of the Covenant. You know what that is. But that is a wooden box that was overlaid by, uh, with gold. And on the top of the box, there was a lid that covered up the contents. The top of that box was called the mercy seat. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there was placed the tablets of the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. And the lid was placed upon the top of this box of the Ark of the Covenant to cover up that law and to keep it out of sight. On the Day of Atonement, the holy, uh, the uh, high priest rather would go into the Holy of Holies, which was kept in the tabernacle there, and the ark was there. And he would come with the blood of the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle that blood on top of that mercy seat. And that was typical of Christ's blood that was shed for us, that serves as the protection against God's wrath because we are sinners. God said, put the law in the box, and he covered it up, and the blood is over top of that, which means that we're sheltered from the condemnation of the law because of Christ's blood. So God forgave people on the basis of the blood of Christ, and as long as that blood is applied, then the barrier that is between us and, and, the, and the condemnation of the law and the forgiveness of God, that, that barrier has not been breached. And so this is a type that look forward to the crucifixion of Christ and how that our forgiveness was obtained by this once for all final sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. And the implication of that, of course, would be that without the sacrifice, without belief in that, that we are still sinners and we can't approach God because of those sins, because sins have not been forgiven. And then as an application of that, we can look at the blind man that Jesus healed in John chapter 9. And I think you remember about the man there that was born blind from birth. And Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. He made little balls of clay with his spittle and he put it on that man's eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And since it was the Sabbath day, the sanctimonious Pharisee said that Jesus had broken the law and therefore he was a sinner. 
And in case you're interested, on Sunday morning, we're going to talk about not this particular incident, but another one uh, where Jesus teaches on the Sabbath, and we're going to see how important that the Sabbath was to the Jews, and Jesus breaking the Sabbath, at least according in their minds, how serious of an offense that that was. Now, there's a lot to the story that we have here about this blind man, but I just want to read a part of this that's germane to this discussion. The Pharisees questioned the man about his healing, and the implication was that the one who healed him, which was Jesus, could not be from God because he had broken the Sabbath. Now, here they're speaking to this blind man, and it says in verse number 28 of John 9, Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses, As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened my eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God, and doeth his will, and you might want to underline that, doeth his will, we'll talk about that in a minute. If a man be a worshiper of God, and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Now there you see, the blind man assumed that Jesus was sent from God and that his healing came from God because he was very sure of this, that God does not hear sinners. And you see the implication of that? The blind man says, God is not disposed to give this man Jesus the power to heal me. If he's a sinner, God must have accepted him or else God would not hear him. Now, he didn't yet know who Jesus was. He would find that out just a little bit later in that passage. He didn't know that he was the son of God, but he did know enough about Jehovah God to know that there is a basis on which we can expect God to do something for us. And that basis is that we have a relationship that exists with him because our sins have been forgiven. And so if we are forgiven, we are accepted. God accepts us. And then when God accepts us, the second thing comes true, and that is God accepts our prayers. Now our text tells us that those that have eternal life are able to have the confidence that God hears their prayers, or as I've just stated, that God is disposed to do something for us that he doesn't do for others. He doesn't do this for people that don't have eternal life. Every prayer that goes up to God gets rejected unless God has accepted the person. And when God accepts the person by faith in Christ, then prayer is accepted. Jesus made that clear in his teachings about prayer. He specifically told the disciples in John 14, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. There Jesus says, if you must ask in my name, and you need to understand what he means by that, because it means to believe everything that that name stands for. It's the acceptance that Jesus Christ is God, and that he is the way of salvation, that he is the only way of salvation, the only way we have eternal life. And when you believe that, your prayers are accepted, God hears you, and God is disposed towards you. 
And so that would leave everyone out that does not believe in Jesus Christ. They don't have their sins forgiven. They don't have eternal life. And so God does not hear. And I can assure you that is not popular doctrine. People don't like to hear that because it's just not politically correct to call a national day of prayer and say, we're asking only Christians to pray, true Christians, because they are the only ones that will be heard. I promise you the president or some leader of this country is not going to stand up and say anything like that. And yet, if you're a Christian, that is what must be believed because you can't be a Christian and not believe that because any other belief says that the word of God is not true. It denies the record that God gave of his son. So that's the confidence that we have in prayer. Because we have believed, God accepts us and he accepts our prayers. Now we notice again, our text says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. So once we have established that relationship and we know that prayers are accepted, when you get to that point, for most Christians, that's when things begin to go askew. This is when prayer starts to get off track, unless we do something, and that is to observe the condition that God has put on prayer. Now, secondly, we need to look at that, the condition of prayer. And there's basically one condition put on prayer. I could say that there are two conditions if we consider first that you must have believed but we're going to assume that we're talking about people who are believers because we can't even get started on prayer without being born again but there is one condition that we find here that must be observed and that is prayer are answered prayers are answered according to the will of God prayers are answered according to the will of God that's the condition If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Now, folks, that sounds simple, but there's where we have the downfall. That's the sticking point because we have to consider that any time that our prayers are not answered in the way that we like, it's because they were not in the will of God. And so we have to get this, that if we're going to have prayers answered, then we need to know something about the will of God, don't we? If that's the stipulation that's put upon it, that's our condition. Surely, if we're going to get prayers answered, we've got to start out knowing something about the will of God. Now, I have to tell you, I don't know everything there is to know about the will of God. I'll get, that, I'll get to that a little bit in just a moment. But I do know this, that there are three types of will that are in God. And I'm going to give you those tonight, and we're not going to go into great detail about all three of them because there's really only one of them that applies to prayer. Three types of will that are in God. The first one is God's decretive will. That's what we call God's will of ordination, or another word for that would be his sovereign will. Philadelphia Confession of Faith states it this way, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. Now much of God's decretive will is a secret to us. We don't realize what that will is until it comes to pass. That's the will of God in which no conditions are placed. This would be things like the sureness of our salvation, that his people, God's people, ordained from eternity past. It's the ordination of God's plan of salvation that would come about by the suffering and death of 
Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the decretive will of God. That doesn't change. Or I should say, it's not something that we can, certainly couldn't affect with prayer. Secondly, there's God's preceptive will. And that's God's will that's found in the commandments. That's God's will of desire. That's what God wants us to do. But these are things where man has a choice. For instance, God desires that we obey him, but it's obvious that God's preceptive will often is disobeyed, and most of the time it is disobeyed. Certainly by those that are lost, it's disobeyed, and many Christians do as well. Uh, So the preceptive will of God is something that's broken on a consistent basis, and it was the breaking of God's preceptive will that caused the fall of man and the curse that came from that, which still affects us today third type of will in God is God's permissive will. And that's what God allows, but he doesn't necessarily condone. For example, God allows sin. He allowed the fall of man. He allows people to do many wicked things, and included in that what I mentioned just a moment ago, he allows the preceptive will to be broken. That's his permissive will. And men commit sins that bring about their deaths, uh, it brings the sin brings about the death of the wicked, but God doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked, but he permits that to be so. Now, which of those three types of will do you think would have bearing on our prayers? Well, John actually answers the question for us in the third chapter, verse number 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. Now, I just told you that God's will of commandments is his preceptive will, his preceptive will. And so if we're going to receive right answers to prayers, they fall into the category of preceptive will. And that's where the difficulty really starts to arise. Now, it should be obvious that we could never pray anything that's against God's decretive will and receive an answer to that. I mean, you simply can't do that. You can't pray against something that God has already decreed and say, God, change that. Do something about that. Now, for an example, and I want you to hear me out on this because you may not like what I'm going to say. You may not understand it, but I hope you will. It would be wrong to pray that God would save everyone in the world seems kind of strange, doesn't it? But it'd be wrong to pray that God would save everyone in the world because God's will of desire is that they would be saved, but his decretive will has already said they won't be. In fact, in John chapter 17, Jesus said that he was not praying for the world. Do you remember that? He says, I don't pray for the world. He says, I'm praying for my disciples and I pray for those who will believe through their word. So you couldn't pray for the salvation of the entire world and expect that God would answer that prayer. But what you can do is you can pray for your loved ones and you can pray for your friends and you can pray for your neighbors and you can pray for people to be reached by our missionaries. You can pray for them and pray for a whole lot more besides because you don't really know which one of them Uh, which ones of them are in God's decree. And then when you're done praying for them, you simply say... Not my will, but thine be done. We don't understand all about God's will, so we have to say that your will be done. You see, we would never want to pray according to our will. If we did that, and God were to answer that, then that replaces him as the sovereign with us. 
we would be in charge and then not God. And whenever you're ready to take control of the entire universe and keep that running and make sure everything goes like it's supposed to go, then you can start praying, my will be done. No, we pray that God's will will be done. Then another difficulty of praying within the will of God is the difference between our ways and the way that God works. Most of the time, or a lot of the time, I should say, we don't understand the way that God works. For instance, if I'm reading the Word of God, it makes a a whole lot more sense to me for God to keep Paul out of prison rather than let him go to prison. My idea would be, well, let him out. Let him preach to as many people as he can. Let him travel all over the world as far as he can go preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. My will says set Paul free. My will says... I don't understand why the Apostle James was allowed to be killed by Herod very early in the Apostles' ministry. I mean, how much better would it have been to have the whole complement of the Apostles for their entire natural lifetimes, whatever time God would give them to live, hopefully all of them into old age like the Apostle John. Why not let them all live that long so they can preach the gospel of Christ? My will would say, God, that's what you ought to do. My will says that... I don't understand why God would let John the Baptist be put into prison and then let his, his head be taken off because some girl did a lewd dance in front of Herod. I don't understand that. My, my will says, God, here's what should be done. Let John out of prison. Let John preach. Let him minister. Let him give the gospel to people. My will is that Christians would never be persecuted. My will, that Christians would never have any problems, that Christians would never be killed for their faith. And so if it was left up to me to make all of those decisions, I probably would have done things differently. But then I would have made a mess of things. And the reason why is because I can't see the end from the beginning. I don't know all the contingencies that exist by changing just one small part of God's will. But God knows all of that. God has all of that in his control. I can't see it, but God can. So I don't know the will of God in its entirety. And that's why I have to pray, not my will, but thine be done. So I've already said I don't know everything about God's will, but there are some things we can know about God's will. Uh, that, that has to be apparent. If we're going to pray in God's will, we have to know something about it. So I'm going to give you a few thoughts here about what I do know and what you can know about the will of God. First, I know this, that when we pray, it's God's will for us to have the right motive. The condition, or this is part of that overall condition of prayer, praying within the will of God, that we pray with the right motive. James addressed that in James 4, verse 3. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. You have trouble getting prayers answered? Then what are you praying for? Is it constantly me, 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 mine, mine, mine? Do you pray for things that you want because you want to keep up with everybody else? Do you know it's even possible for people to pray that they could win people to the Lord just so they can say that they won somebody? I mean, there are ministries that that feed on that kind of thing, that they, they have quotas that are imposed upon their people. And they say, you have to reach this many people. And people that are on staffs, you have to reach this many people. And those numbers have to be big. You have to get those numbers up. And instead of being so much concerned about people being saved, it comes down to what does, what does it look, what looks good on the ministry? 
How can we look good in the ministry? Well, that can actually be consuming it upon your lust, and God doesn't answer those kinds of prayers. If your prayers end up feeding your pride, then you can be sure that you're out of the will of God. So God's will is that you pray for the right, with the right motive. Now, what is the right motive? Well, always pray for God's glory. Always pray that whatever happens, whatever happens is used, whatever God gives you, whatever it is, that you use it for God's glory and not for yours. Now, a little bit later on, we're going to talk about praying for material things. And there's nothing wrong with Christians praying for material things. Nothing wrong with asking God for your provisions. You pray for yourself, and and that's all right to do that. But when the material goes to materialism, then you're out of God's will. Those are two different things. Pray for what's material, but you never want to get into materialism because then you're out of God's will. The second thing that we know about God's will is that it's God's will for you to be holy. It's God's will for us to be holy. Now, a big hindrance to prayer is the holiness of people's lives. Isaiah faced this battle with the children of Israel. I mean, they were being overrun by the Assyrians, and they weren't blessed by God. And what was the problem? Was the problem with God? Well, this is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Isaiah said, it's not because of lack of power in God. That's not the problem. It's not because God can't save And it's not because God doesn't care that he doesn't hear you. Why aren't you delivered? Why aren't you saved? His answer is in verse number 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. So do you wonder sometimes why your prayers aren't answered? Check up on your holiness. Check up and see what your life is like. You can't carouse around with the world and fill yourself up with the junk of this world and walk with the world and do what they do and go where they go and expect that God is going to hear you. It doesn't work like that. God's will is for you to be holy. And then when you've taken care of that junk that's in your life, God will hear you. This is what John said in the first chapter. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, and there he's simply talking about walking in sin, we walk in darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. And that's what Isaiah was talking about. It's what James talks about in James 4.8. He says, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. And so if you want your prayers answered, check up on your life. It's not automatic that a person who says that they're a believer in Christ will receive answers to prayer. You may be forgiven of your sins, but you won't get your prayers answered unless you meet the conditions. Now, all of those fall under that verse that we read earlier in the third chapter. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, there's the third thing. It's God's will for you to keep his commandments. 
Where is it that we get the confidence that prayers will be answered? If you keep God's commandments, that means that you've met the conditions for answered prayer. And really, as I said, that sums up all of the foregoing. You say, well, how does it do that? How do you sum it up in this? Well, your motive will be right if you keep the commandments because it's God's command that you don't consume upon your lust. You'll pray rightly because you love God and because you love others and because you esteem others better than you. Those are part of the commandments that Christ has given. And if you keep those commandments, then you are praying in the will of God. You'll be holy also if you keep God's commandments. That's what holiness is. I mean, how else would you ever define sanctification for a Christian unless you define it in terms of keeping God's commandments? It's all measured. Your sanctification is measured by your obedience to God because that's what a sanctified holy person does. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to let this be the concluding scripture this part of the message. And I want to read to you what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. And if you have a pen, you'll want to underline some words here that'll help you to really understand the connection that this has with the subject that we're talking about. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 7, Paul said, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God so that ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Now there are some really good pointers for answered prayer. Ought to walk and please God, abound more and more, Know the commandments. God's will is your sanctification. God did not call us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. And if you have all of that right, then you have met the conditions for prayer. So if you're puzzled about it, here's some things that you can check up on to try to correct matters in your life to see if you really are doing what you should do in order to get your prayers answered. Now, that's just a beginning into this subject. These are some great verses and a lot that we can learn from this. But the ultimate goal here is to have the confidence, to have that assurance that God hears us. And John says, this is a natural conclusion, verse 13. It's a natural conclusion from verse 13 that if we have believed in the name of the Son of God and we have eternal life abiding in us, that we can have confidence that God hears us. That's the whole heart of the matter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, what a great blessing it is to look into this and find out what you have for us to know. Lord, as we think about prayer, I know that there are so many Christians that, that struggle with this and they can't seem to get it right and they don't know why that you don't answer the prayers in the way that they want. And you have outlined how to do this in your word. And really, as we've spoken tonight, it comes down to a very, very important, a very, very important issue, and that is 
Do we keep commandments? Do we obey you? Are we walking in the light as you are in the light? And I pray, Lord, that everyone here would do that. And if we would, we know that we would have a very powerful church concerning prayer. And maybe it's because maybe we are limited in some of the things that we can do, some of the things that we need, uh, some of the ministries that we would like to have because we just don't have enough people that are really holy in their lives. And Lord, I pray that you would change that. I pray that you'd work on hearts and convict us of that, that we would be holy people, sanctified people, so that we can have confidence that you hear our prayers. Bless us tonight, Lord. We thank you for those who've come to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.